Okay, well, good morning. If I've never met you, I'm Luke. It's a treat to be able to share a message with you. Um, we are in week five out of five weeks in our series entitled Eternal Beings in a Temporary World. And so far, we looked at week one, the story that you're living in. What is the timeline that you live according to when you think of, when you plan your life, when you think through death even to the other side? What timeline do you think through? And how does that inform how you live? We looked at what's going to happen when Christ returns. When Jesus comes back, what's he going to do? We looked at heaven. We looked last week at hell. And today we're looking at the subject of death. Hmm, nervous laughter. We're asking, that we're asking and answering the question, what really happens when we die? Which is profoundly relevant to our lives. It's profoundly relevant. Um, George Bernard Shaw said this of death. He said, the statistics of death are staggering. One out of every one people die. And it's profoundly relevant because death is not a spectator sport, is it? Woody Allen said this. He said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Sigmund Freud said of death, and finally there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has been found, nor probably ever will. Now we know as Christ followers, he was wrong, but what can we know for sure about death? What, can we, what hope can we have in terms of facing death? And, uh, and that's what I want to explore today. I, I, let's start by looking at a very, very strange Bible verse. Okay, this verse at first is going to seem very strange, but then upon reflection, I think it's going to start to make a bit more sense to us. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2. Have a look at this. Try to get your head around this. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. Another translation, better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Another one is better to go to funerals than weddings. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. In what world is it better to go to a funeral than to a party? Why is this true? And I think it's because the writer of Ecclesiastes, a very wise, wise man who wrote this, he understood that going to a funeral or a memorial sobers us to the reality of how finite our lives really are. We live in a moment where many of us would rather not think about death. We'd rather not think about those sorts of things. In fact, even this morning when I said the subject we're looking at today is death, there was nervous laughter, but probably a lot of awkwardness in many of us who thought, do we really have to talk about this in church? I mean, it's Sunday, the weather's nice, there's so many nice things going on. This is going to be such a downer as we talk about death, isn't it? Death has become taboo. We distract ourselves. We don't like to talk about death at all. We're obsessed with positivity, positive vibes, thinking happy thoughts, right? And death, if we're honest, is a bit of a buzzkill. It's a bit of a major downer. We would rather push death out of our minds and just pretend for as long as we possibly can that it does not exist and it does not concern our lives. We as a species as a generation have repressed death. Don spoke so well about three weeks ago of the casino effect, didn't he? Two things you never see in a casino, clocks and windows. Clocks and windows. Why would you never see clocks and windows in a casino, you ask? It's a great question. I'll tell you why. Because they want to suck you in. They want to remind you, would cause you to forget that there is reality and a real world outside. 
Windows remind you of time passing, clocks remind you of time passing, and so close it up, create a space, flashing lights, loud sounds, every now and again a jackpot sound goes, wow, this is exciting, forget about reality and get sucked into this little world between these four walls while we rob your life of money, really, but, um, but, but that's what's going on. And I think the devil has done something of that in terms of time as well. He has so fixated us on the temporary present that we've become kind of, we're no longer mindful of the eternal reality that we live in. And going to a funeral, Solomon understood, sobers us to the reality of our own mortality. Can I say to you in love this morning, you are going to die. And it's probably going to happen in your own lifetime. And you need to be prepared for it, because when that moment comes, it is too late to prepare. D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar, said this, Whatever the church does, it should prepare its members to face death and to meet God. So I want to do a little bit of that today. Let's ask a few questions of death today. First question, where does death come from? Where does death come from? And the Bible teaches us that death is an intruder in the human story. Death is an intruder into the human story. The teaching of the Bible is recounted in the early chapters in the book of Genesis is that death wasn't part of the program when God began the world. Sin and death were not there in the beginning. It was only in our human, our human rejection of God that death and sin became part of the story. That's what we speak of uh, in the church of as the fall Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 and the Lord God commanded the man saying you shall surely eat of any tree in the garden you can eat of that tree and that tree and that tree and that or tuck in that is a goodie over there chow from that tree you can eat from any tree in the whole garden but that one tree over there of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die and when they did and death, like an unwanted intruder, crept into the human story. Adam and Eve opened the door to death on our behalf. I think many of us, or many people, struggle with that idea. But the reality is, I think, um, all of us would have done the same thing. I mean, Adam literally, when he opened his eyes, it was God breathing over him after he just breathed into him the breath of life. If Adam went for that tree, you and I would have gone for the tree in the same way as well. And the moment we did, in a sense, we rejected God, His ways and His wisdom, and we thought, no, no, we know better. We're going to do things on our own. And it was in that moment that sin and death entered into, uh, into our being, if you will, like a virus that infected the whole world and will ultimately kill everyone. And ever since that moment, humanity has been bound by what is uh, the sin and death nexus. Death is inescapable to all of us. That's where death came from. Like an unwanted intruder, we welcomed in to the story and has changed the experience of being a human being ever since. What is death? And the answer is trickier than you think if you're a Christian. St. Augustine once said this. He said, I know exactly what time is until somebody asks me to explain it to them. And then it gets very tricky. If you think about it, how do you explain time? Death is similar in some ways. The Bible defines death in two parts. There is physical death and there is spiritual death. Spiritual death is the separation of humanity from God. 
the separation of humanity from God. It happened as sin became part of uh, the fabric of a human being and, and a human being's makeup. We were separated from God. But then there's that spiritual death. Then there's physical death. And physical death is the separation of the immaterial part of your being, your soul, your spirit, from your material part of your being, your body. And the separation of, your, of the immaterial, the soul and the spirit, from the physical body. These two are separated in death. And ultimately, your body in death returns to the ground from which it came and your, 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 material, your immaterial part of your being goes on uh, living. But notice the critical thing is that the immaterial part of your, your being uh, go, continues in life. It is not the ceasing to exist of everything that you are. Don't answer this question out loud. Where do we go when we die? The moment your body ceases to be alive, your heart stops beating, your brain stops functioning, etc., your soul and your spirit uh, departs from your body, what actually happens? Where do we go? And this is where it gets a little bit interesting for us because we don't ultimately go to our final place of rest with Christ um, in the new heavens and the new earth. We go to what theologians speak about as the intermediate state. I hope you took your vitamins this morning and you probably didn't get coffee like me because of load shedding, hey? Oh, that is the saddest thing of my morning so far, that there is no coffee. Uh, but I look forward, the urns are heating up through the meeting, and by the time the meeting is over, there will be coffee. Can we take a look at the timeline there, Robin? This is an interesting timeline. Now, admittedly, this timeline is super linear. It's very clip-arty, and it's just the best I could do with PowerPoint, given massive theological con uh, sort of uh, concepts we're trying to wrap our brains around and trying to artic articulate them as simply as possible. Hence, overly linear, yes, but I think helpful in terms of explaining where we're at. Death for every single human being in history so far has happened before the return of of Christ. Christ came the first time. He was crucified. He was raised back to life. He then was around for 40 days before he ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit to come and to fill his church. And now we're living in this experience as the church of, of the already of what God has done. He has, he has brought us forgiveness from sin. He has filled us with his spirit and empowered us to life. It's no longer a, 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 an experience here. It's an experience here in the life of God. But it's also a not yet experience because Jesus has not yet returned and set this world to right, completed the work that he began to do when he first came. And, and so for every human being in history who's died, we have died uh, or we will die before, we, the jury's still out in the future, but for, you know what I mean, looking back, before Christ has returned. Okay, just wrap your brain around that timing. Okay, so, so if Jesus hasn't returned yet, then the new heavens and the new earth have not yet been created and they have not been unified together yet, right? We have not received our brand new spiffy resurrection bodies. So what happens in between while we wait? This is the intermediate state. In, the, uh, in, in church history, there have been four main ideas. In the intermediate state, there have been four main ideas. The first two you needn't concern yourself too much with. Um, the third one we start to get a little bit warmer, and the fourth one is where the scriptures, I think, most clearly land. And so I'm going to walk you through the four views, culminating in where I think the strongest one is in number four. Are you ready? The first idea is limbo. You've heard that word before. You do the limbo, hey? Uh, not the same thing. Uh, it's this strange kind of middle of nowhere place where everything is gray and you kind of just go there into like a waiting room for a very, very long time. The good news is that is not the teaching of the Bible. 
This, we will move right past it. The second one is purgatory. And this is where the soul exp- experiences a time of purification for sins committed in this life. And having been purified through what is essentially suffering, the spirit then, having been purified through suffering, is then released to go to heaven. The strength of this view, albeit very small strength, recognizes our need as human beings to be to being transformed in order to be able to go and to be in our final place of rest. The weakness, which is a tremendous weakness, is that it undervalues the power of the cross to transform the believer's life. We don't believe in salvation through purification by suffering. Rather, we believe in salvation through the regenerative power of Christ. It's faith in Jesus, not faith in suffering, that is the hope of our salvation. And so we can park limbo, we can park purgatory. Now we're starting to get a little bit warmer, but we're not quite there yet on number three. The third idea is that of soul sleep, which is a state of unconsciousness while we wait until Jesus returns. A little bit like when you went on a long car trip and you fell asleep, probably as a kid. Have you ever done that? You went on a long car trip and you jumped in the car and maybe I remember driving in the car with Lauren and Lauren got a bit car sick so she would take sleeping tablets and we'd get pretty much like 30 kilometers outside of East London when we were driving to Durban on an eight-hour car trip. And she would fall asleep. And then about 30 minutes before Durban, she would wake up and go, are we there yet? Wow, we we're almost in Durban. Wow, that was so fast. And I was struggling to stay awake, chewing on caffeine and whatever. A little bit like that, you know, I recently had surgery in my hand about six weeks ago, and I can still distinctly, very clearly remember lying on the table there, the anesthetist had put something in my arm, and he was asking me a series of questions, I can remember exactly what he asked me, and he said, you you described a sensation I was going to feel in my arm, and he said, don't worry, this is part of the thing, and then it'll be about a few seconds, and I literally remember him saying that, and then I have no recollection of what happened next, until I remember waking up, healed and whole having had my thumb fixed, right? This is the idea of soul sleep. It's a bit of a minority view, although I understand it's held by the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses. The strength of this view is it has a very high view of the importance of our body for human life and existence. The unity of the body and the, the immaterial and the material. The weakness of this view is that the Bible speaks far clearly, far more clearly, of what the intermediate state is going to be like. And it speaks of it as both conscious and joyous. Take a look with me. Philippians 1 verse 21. For me to live is Christ. This is Paul writing to the church. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul writing to the church as he labors to see the church grow toward maturity and fullness. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The strongest view of the four, in my opinion, is the view of what I'm going to call today paradise. 
Paradise is when your spirit, your soul, your, the immaterial part of your being is united with Christ. You have not yet received your resurrection body, nor has the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth been, and their unity been achieved. However, the, this is an upgraded experience from this life because you are with Christ. So it's an upgrade, lack of a better word, but it's still incomplete because a substantial part is missing and that our ultimate existence is not going to be bodiless, but it is temporarily. Look at what Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. It's a thief on the cross. He's dying next to Jesus, probably never met Jesus in his life before. And Jesus looks across to him and he says to him, truly I say to you, today, important word, you will be with me, more important phrase, in paradise. Today, be with me. Verse uh, chapter, we, again, we read, echo Paul's words, words again. We just read uh, Philippians 1.23. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For Paul, for Jesus describing uh, to the thief on the cross, the most important characteristic of what we call the intermediate state is you will be with Christ. And Paul continues and says, for that is far better. The, the, temp, the, the temporary intermediate state is... Uh, more already of what Christ has done, but still some not yet of what Christ has achieved. Of all the uncertainties we may have, and it is mysterious, the great certainty that should overwhelm all of our insecurities in the uncertainty is this, that you will be with Christ. And being with Christ will be the safest, best, most joyous experience you could have. For Paul, he said, uh, for that is far better. Jesus said, today you will be with me. Okay, so can we uh, have a look at what this looks like? I need two volunteers. And, uh, and I couldn't think of two more equally balanced people than Ty and Tim. Come on. Hey, would you mind helping us out here, please? Sorry, I didn't prepare you guys. If you guys can stand over here for us, maybe. No, we've got camera here too. So you're going to be on my left here and stand back to back. There we are. And now lock your elbows together. Okay, reach around. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay, that's it. Okay, jeez, this is a buff body we've got here, hey? Yeah. Must be cross-fitting or something. Anyway. Okay, so we've got uh, Tim will be our body today because he's got more space on the floor here. And Ty will be our spirit, okay? The material part of our being and the immaterial part. Look at them. They are unified. They are together. They are one together because it's life. But then in death, our immaterial part of our being, our body, so thank you, thank you, TJ and Lauren. That is correct. That was a test for all of you and only TJ and Lauren passed. The material part of our being dies and goes and falls to the floor, plummets. Okay, to the ground. Where it will decompose, become a series of cells, whether it's cremated, whether it is entombed in a, a whatever it is, it will end up in the ground from which it came. However, our immaterial part of our being, our spirit, goes to be with Christ. Come here, Lauren. Come on, it was an easy decision. I had to pick Christ to be my wife. Amen. If I'd picked anybody else, I would have been in trouble. Huh? Um, okay, and so, so he goes to be with Christ. After which, at some point, Christ will return to earth and set the world uh, to right. He will, he will, um, he will uh, renew the relationships between heaven and earth. And at which point, 
our body, Tim, will be resurrected to life, powerfully, and reunited with Tyre in a way where they could never possibly be separated again in their ultimate state of, uh, of rest in the new earth, unified with a new heaven under the lordship and reign of Christ for all eternity. <laughs> then, done. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So what you can see is this is a conscious experience for Ty. Time is passing by. He's aware. He's aware of Christ, and he's enjoying that place with Christ. Sorry, I stole that illustration from Andrew Wilson in the theology course. If you've not done the theology course, it's three hours a week. It goes for 18 months, and you can join next year. It is wonderful. Sorry, a little plug in the middle of that sermon. Okay, all the whilst on this side, Ty was experiencing time. Tim was decomposing and going part of, to part of the ground and fertilizing flowers and all of that sort of stuff. But, but, but Ty was still alive and, and he was experiencing Christ and, and it was joyous. And, uh, and ultimately they were reunited together. How does Paul describe this? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51 uh, on, on through to 58. I'll read to us. Behold, I tell you a mystery. If after today you haven't figured it all out, you're in good company. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. You don't need purgatory for that. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul is taunting death in light of the finished work of Christ. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We'll double click on the end in a second. What if you're not in Christ? Well, I think the opposite is true as well. That if you didn't want to be with Christ in life, you're not going to be with Christ in death either. It's sad, admittedly, but it does seem reasonable. Those who die outside of Christ would remain in what is called the shadowy place of the Shoal or Hades until Christ returns. The, the, the implication is obviously, don't reject Christ in this life if you want to be with Him in the next Lean in to Christ now while you can. Turning back to the Christian, what will the moment of dying be like? I want to get a little bit serious for a second, but I also want to just distinguish something here. So far what we've done is we've been speaking theology, we've been drawing theology from the Scriptures. But now I want to take a, what I think is a leap a little bit further. We're taking theology, we're taking the Scriptures, but now we're starting to extrapolate what we think it could look like. I'm answering, trying to answer the question, what will the moment of dying be like? Now I can only speculate because I've never been there, although many books have been written about people who've allegedly been there. I must be honest with you, I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to those books, kind of hard to argue with them, right? Um, and you can make a lot of money from doing them, so I'm a bit of a skeptic. 
I don't know. Maybe you find comfort in those as well. That's totally fine as well. But I want to create a bit of a distinction now because I'm trying to now imagine what that moment is like in light of theological truths. Okay, so just get a little bit of a, a little bit of a, I'm taking some creative license. All right. Can we do that? Okay. I, um, I have a, an atheist family member who told me this, the most deeply unsettling thing to his atheism was watching his Christ-following aunt die. She was a spinster, lived her whole life, lived through the Second World War, um, and, and she knew Jesus. And the moment of her passing, he was with her, and he said the most profoundly unsettling thing to his atheism was the peace with which she slipped into death. It, it was inexplainable to him. It was unf- you, how could she have such peace about going into death? Where, where does that come from? Yet it was, it was palpable. You, it was real. It was undeniable. Dallas Willard, who was a Baptist pastor who had a phenomenal gift of imagining theological tr- truths played out in the abstract parts of life and faith. But, it, but, but in light of these theological truths, Dallas in his later years developed pancreatic cancer. And at, at this stage of his life that I'm going to be quoting him from, he had a clear sense that he was heading towards death. And upon reflection one day, he said to one of his friends, he said, I think that when I die, it might be a, a while before I realize that it's happened. You see, Dallas used to believe that life was in part the ceaseless flow of thoughts and ideas and desires and feelings and intuitions that make up our consciousness. And that those things would continue through death. His thought was that that the experience of death would be like crossing from one room, the threshold from one room into the next. And that for the person crossing through in that threshold moment, as you you pass through the threshold, you, you, you would be aware of both rooms, both spaces you're in, both the room from which you are going and into the room from which you are coming into. It was this transitioning experience where he believed you would be able to experience both at the same time. So when Dallas died, he was with his closest friend, a man named Gary. He actually co-wrote a book with Dallas. And Gary was relaying the story of Dallas's passing. And Gary says it like this. He says, in the end, the circumstances of his passing were difficult because of the cancer. But in the actual moment that Dallas died, this is what he said. He said, Dallas got a far-off look in his eyes. And then, without looking at anyone in the room, spoke the words, thank you, thank you. And then he died. And Gary said this, he said, I don't know if those were his last words in this life or his first words in the next. Now, before you shoot him down, let's take a look at Acts chapter 7 together as we step back to the scriptures. We're going to look at the the, the death of the first person after Christ to be killed for his Christian faith. It's the stoning of a man named Stephen. He was one of the most faithful followers of Christ the world has ever seen. And he was stoned to death. Um, Acts chapter 7 verse 54. Now when the religious leaders heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Not the atmosphere, not the stars in the sky. 
he gazed into heaven. It's as if the veil that separates this life from the other side in that moment for Stephen has somehow become perilously thin and he's able to see through into heaven and he saw not the stars, not the clouds in the atmosphere as they formed rain. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Last words in this life or first in the next. You answer that for yourself. I, I, it seems to me that there is far more going on here than just a vision. That somehow the veil that separates this life from the next, in these moments for, for Stephen, he's able to see through to the other side, if you will, and to see Christ there. Verse 57, what implication did this have in the moment of Stephen's passing? But they cried out with loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed at him. You can see the anger and the, the hatred with which they come at him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him, which is they picked up rocks, and they threw rocks at Stephen until he had he, he had died. It's a horrible way to go. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. If you're new to the church, that young man named Saul is going, hey, I'll hold your cloak so you don't get any blood on it. I'll hold your stuff so you can throw harder and do more damage to Stephen. That same Saul goes on to have an experience of Christ and becomes the apostle Paul who writes more than half of the New Testament the same man. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It seems to me as I read that, that the barrier between life and death in the moment of passing through is, well, it's permeable that Stephen is able to see through the life on the other side of death. It's not as disconnected from our present life as what it feels in this moment. It's as if you are already living in eternal life. And I wonder if as you go through that threshold moment, as you just kind of get to the other side of the threshold, you'll look back and you'll realize just how close to this moment you were tomorrow when you go into your office. That somehow what you do tomorrow is, is, is one endless stream of life under Christ that you've been living in that we can't yet see through. But, but in that moment, it will suddenly become clear just how already you are living in eternal life in this moment of your life. It just feels... It just feels like the casino is up, but in that moment, it's like the casino will be exploded. And what will be revealed is this has always been, this is one long stream of life in Christ. And, and, and right now, your decisions today and your decisions tomorrow will be shaping your experience then on the other side of the threshold too. When you're tempted to, to take a shortcut today or tomorrow, a shortcut on your integrity, a shortcut on your faith. When you know what you should do and you're tempted to... to I'm fighting today for, and this series is about... It's about trying to take this moment that awaits for all of us 
and pull it through with you into the present so that you can almost look through now into the heavens and see Christ waiting there for you, urging you on, drawing you forward to life with Him. We've got to feel in the present eternity drawing us forward to Christ rather than this thrumming cultural pressure to just live in the here and the now as if it's all that matters. In that moment, you will become instantly aware of just how connected your life is to all of eternity. Friends, you are an olive tree. You are not a daisy. I told you a few weeks ago, is an olive tree certified at being alive at, at the time of Christ? It's alive in Greece now. It's over 2,000 years old. Think when you decide, when you, when you decide what you give your life to, what you give your time to, what you give your, your, your heart to, your money to, your relationships to, when you prioritize what matters most in your life this side of heaven, do so mindful that you are living an olive tree existence, not a fleeting daisy or fruit fly gone existence. Make decisions this side of, of, of death that impact into that side. My favorite movie, or second favorite movie of all time, is a movie called Gladiator. The famous line Russell Crowe speaks in that movie is what we do in life echoes through eternity. I'm saying it echoes far more than even Gladiator ever thought when they spoke it. What you do here, you are already living in that. You just can't see it now. Okay, where are we? We're talking about the intermediate state and what happens when we die. And I'm making the case that ultimately when we die, we will be with Christ. It will be an upgraded experience, yet it will still be ephemeral in that we do not yet have our resurrection bodies. So what must we do now? How do we respond now? How do we respond now? And, and, and I want to just give us two responses. Respond while you can to the invitation to Christ to come and to be a citizen of His kingdom. If you're still alive now, you've got chance to repent, to put your trust in Jesus and to make Him Lord of your life. That is the greatest way you can secure your eternity on the other side is to, is to now come into relationship with Jesus. The, the scriptures are so clear. John chapter 5 verse 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, so whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The gospel message is the great hope of this world that this life is not all there is. That in God's kingdom, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And he invites you into his kingdom to be joined to Christ. You can do that now. That's what being a disciple is all about. And then to those of us who are in Christ. We're coming into land now. Last one. Allow death to give you a healthier perspective on your life. That's what Solomon said when he said, better to go to the funeral than to a party. Allow death to give you a healthier perspective on your life. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast. 
Some of you are under pressure. You're tempted to compromise. You're tempted to, to, to change course from doing what you know is right in Christ. Paul says, no, no, no. It's not just this brief moment. You look through the threshold. You see Christ there. You see eternity there. You, you extrapolate back into the, the present moment, and you be steadfast. You be immovable in your faith, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For some of us, we need to get in the game and do doing the work of the Lord. Christianity is not just about a good kind of moral base to raise your children in and a, a peaceful place to keep you okay through life. It's about a kingdom that is invading the earth. It's heaven invading the earth in the person of Christ and then through Christ followers as they're deployed in the world. And Paul says, get involved in bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I want to give you some homework. Can we do that? Some homework. It's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be depressing. Doesn't it sound amazing? But it's vitally important. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. I want to ask you to go to a funeral. I want to ask you to go to your own funeral. Let me tell you how to do it. Three things. If you have not yet written a will, Please write a will. Give it to somebody you trust and get them to put it somewhere safe. I am the pastor who often sits with the relatives who are left behind when there has been a will written and when there hasn't been a will written. The experience for those left behind in the wake of a will is far better. So please. I know you don't want to face it, and I know it's hard. It's a little bit like going for that checkup at the doctor that you don't want to go for because you're afraid of what it is. Go for that checkup. You must. Write your will. Give it to someone safe. Mine is with a trusted friend. He's also my financial advisor, and he looks after it for me, for me and from time to time we relook at it because life changes. Write a will, number one. Number two, this is the hard one. This is where it gets tricky. Block a bunch of time, probably two hours. Sit down on your own and write letters to those who would be left behind if you were to suddenly go and be with Jesus. Not everybody in your world. Write letters to the most important people in your life who would be left behind if you were to suddenly die as soon as your letters are finished. <laughs> When you, and then you hand them to someone to, to, to look after you, and you be very clear that this is, that you're not in any danger. They need not worry. You're just asking them to look after these letters in case something was to happen. Um, just be clear. I, didn't, I wasn't clear, and my financial advisor had a bit of a wobbly when suddenly he got all these letters as if I was planning my exit. Anyway, that's not what. Just be clear. Um, don't make the mistake I made. I wept for two hours. At the end of that two hours, I had a headache. I struggled to get on with the rest of my day. But you know what it did? Is it focused me on what was most important in my life. It focused me on what was most important in my relationships. It brought me to reality. It brought me to the reality of my own finite mortality, my own vulnerability, the, the, the nature of my own fleetingness in life and how I shouldn't take anything for granted. It helped me to prioritize what was most important with the time that I have with the people that are most important to me in my life. It's not a place for apologies in those letters. 
Because we're in Christ, we have the gospel, we make apologies face to face while we still have breath in our lungs. This is not a place to outsource your apology to. Go and make that apology now. But this is a place where you remind them what's most important. About 13 years ago, I was preaching a sermon on death in the church I was a part of in East London. And a couple in our church took this to heart, and they got home that same day, and they wrote their letters. Six weeks later, they were leaving church. They rode on a motorbike, and he had an aneurysm, and they were both instantly killed in a car accident. I got to sit with their sons in the wake of their passing, who had discovered the letters their mom had written in her Bible, and they had opened the letters. I cannot tell you the comfort and the clarity which it brought their, her boys in the wake of her passing. I'd like to think it also helped focus their final six weeks of life in what was most important as well. The last one is far easier, don't worry. Write your own funeral instructions. Go to your own funeral. Witness your own funeral. Ask the question, who do you want there? What, what message do you want given? What scriptures do you want read? What songs do you want sung? Often our funeral, our memorial is the last witness to our life. Put something down, write it there with your will, and empower your family rather than leaving them scrambling, having to make difficult decisions in the wake of your passing. None of us know when we're going to go and be with Christ, but we can be prepared. By going to your own funeral, you get a sense of reality. Who matters most in my life? What do I want to do, to them, do with them? What do I want to say to them? And how do I set them up best to flourish this side of heaven? Well done, guys. That was a tough one. Can we stand together and can we pray? Yes, band, come up, please. Land us on something glorious. I want to lead us in some prayers. Three prayers in particular. And then we'll hand over the band to land us in our meeting. Let's close our eyes. To those of us who... You want to be unified with Christ in life. You, it's ex, the message is extraordinary that Jesus has undertaken for, for even your death to be able to bring you to eternal life. But that means being with Christ now, not just then. This is one long stream of life He's inviting you into with Him. And the response is to come to Christ and to, to receive his invitation to become part of an eternal kingdom. And you, in a sense, step out of a temporary world into Christ's eternal one as you bow your knee to him and you say, Christ, be my king. I'm stepping out of my present temporary earthly kingdom. And I'm stepping into your eternal kingdom as I relinquish the rights of king to you, Christ, in my life. Will you pray that prayer for yourself? Jesus, I've been king of my own temporary kingdom so far, but Christ, will you be my king as I become a citizen, no longer the king, a citizen of your kingdom, your eternal kingdom, Jesus. You have my life. I want to follow you and be one of your disciples. If that's you, you pray that prayer. Pray that prayer. The second prayer is for those in our number who death is a scary thing. 
And if you're honest, the thoughts of death and your own death, they're deeply unsettling to you and troubling and they become a cause of, a cause of anxiety and anxiousness to you. And today you've heard the most important truth when it comes to death, that Jesus said, you will be with me. That though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's the greatest comfort to, to those of us who are afraid of dying is the presence of Christ with us in those moments. And this is not a fairy tale. This is the story that history witnesses to who Christ is, what Jesus did. The legacy of Christ 2,000 years on still lives on shaping the world today and shaping our lives today. Christ has said, today you will be with me. I pray for you a peace this morning. Would you receive that peace? That peace that comes not from our prayers, but a peace that comes from the certainty of knowing that Christ will be with you. That when you need Him, Christ will be with you. And you can, you can relinquish the fear of death and dying. Because you'll be at home with the Lord. And there is grace just like Stephen just like Dallas, and just like my Auntie Nora, for you in that moment as well. And then, Lord, I pray for us as a church. Jesus, sober us to the reality of eternity, Jesus. Don't let us get sucked into this temporary present world, losing sight of what really matters in the great and grand scheme of things, Jesus. Cause the pressures to become infatuated with this temporary existence, to, to wane and to weaken in light of the, the truth of eternity, Jesus. Would you cause us to see ourselves as eternal beings, Lord? I pray that temptation would lose its appeal in light of the eternal truths of who we are, God. Would you, Holy Spirit, sear a new timeline into our hearts and consciences, Lord? 